What a beautiful world it was once, at least the river of it was, and it was almost mine and my family's and just a few others who wouldn't steal beer. You could leave beer to cool in the river and it would be so cold when you got back it wouldn't foam much. It would be a beer made in the next town if the town were 10,000 or over. So it was either Kessler beer made in Helena or Highlander beer made in Missoula that we left to cool in the Blackfoot River. What a wonderful world it was once when all the beer was not made in Milwaukee, Minneapolis, or St. Louis. This is the pause button. I'm your host, Borzoi. Joining me are Dark Enlightenment and Dharma King. How are you guys doing? It's an honor to be here. I think this is my first appearance on this show. I believe so, yeah. It's so, good to be back. Uh, yeah. I made it. Yeah. <laughs> we were all making it, Borthers. <laughs> Wag me. Man, uh, I don't know what the edit on this is going to sound like. <laughs> this is this has been the most cursed episode I've ever done. There's a reason why it's taken over a year my to bad. do this. It's my part fault. Of, part of this is the hi- I mean like obviously the hiatus of the kid and all that, but every time I tried to do this episode, like something happened with me, guests fell through, now I'm having audio problems. It's just been <laughs> It is. I don't know what it is about a river runs through it, but this has been, without a doubt, this is not even questionable, the most cursed episode of the pause button I have ever done. For nice. people who obviously don't know what's going on, like my audio just keeps freezing up, so I'll be in the middle of saying something, and then I hear from DK, uh, Borzo, your mic cut out, we can't hear you. <laughs> so I don't know, and I'm not, I'm not redoing, I'm not doing the intro for a third time, so <laughs> I know that. <laughs> I would just go with one of those. Yeah. I know that one of them got caught, got got recorded, so it's okay. We're just gonna move on. We're talking about a river runs through it. Um, I don't remember where we are. I'll let you guys take because the Borsling just wandered off, so I got to go grab him. <laughs> uh, I, why don't you Why don't you introduce us, uh, the? Uh well, okay, gentlemen. Uh, we are here to talk about the 1992 film A River Runs Through It, which is based off of the novella. Uh, semi autobiographical novella by Norman McLean. Uh, I apologize for my voice. I've got a cold. Uh, and with me today are Borzai Baskovich and DK. So uh, thanks for being here, gentlemen. It's great to be back on the pause button. Yes, and welcome, I believe this is welcome back. I believe uh, I believe this is your first time on the show, DK. So welcome to the club. You've officially yes, made I it. have. I have finally made it. Wag me, Borthers. Yes. So. Yeah, so we're talking about, uh, when did it come out? 1991, I believe. The 1992. 1992. 1992 uh, film based on the novella by Norman McLean, which is basically autobiographical. Perhaps with some yes. flourishes, but it's more or less very autobiographical. Yes. 
So. Yeah, I was I was struck by the the plausi- the plausibility of the film was was one of my questions. I was like, th- some of the things seem a little contrived. In particular, the um, the Indian woman uh, who who like well, well, I guess we could talk about it. But yeah, the <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna move my my chair over over a little bit back. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry. I told you it's, it's like, this episode has been cursed. I can't I can't catch a break. We, we just said we spent like five minutes. All we said is that it's, it's nineteen ninety two. We said the same thing three times. And then the baby came. Oh goodness. If you can't laugh, you cry. Oh so uh let's see. The movie stars uh, Tom Skerritt as the Reverend Norman McLean. It, uh, I thought that, I thought it was Gary Oldman at first. <laughs> no, it was Tom Skerritt. Yeah, I did that, too. I did too. Uh, <laughs> who does a pretty good job? Uh, and Brad Pitt's breakout role as uh, the younger Paul McLean, and he's really good. Yeah, and and I it, I didn't know where he came from, but I guess that was where he came from, and makes sense. And. Uh, the uh, main character, uh, Norman McLean, is played by a guy who didn't do much after that. Uh, let me find it here. Oh yeah, he yeah. He look he looks set up to be like he's the leading you know leading role in this uh, Oscar bait prestige project you know why didn't he that's an interesting but i didn't feel that his acting was particularly good which may just be the reason yes like well, he has the looks he has the looks but he he didn't really i mean i didn't his character at the end of the day was like a blank slate to me i didn't really this is the the stand he, he calls himself no he's everybody calls him norman i mean he gets it's the the author's self-insert into his own autobiography um or i don't know i don't know how fictionalized it's, it's, that's, guess, from what I gathered, yeah. no, it's it's extremely autobiographical. All like, if there's any exact, if there's any uh, embellishes, like, I'm going to assume they're probably very minor, more in terms of like perhaps character relationships or timelines of things that may or may not happen. Like, I I read the. There's so one what, exception to that, as I understood. De, you were telling me before the show, if I understood correctly, there is the one crucial exception to that, right? Yeah, yeah. Th- th- towards the end. Th- so don't don't worry about um, spoilers. Like you watch watch the movie. It's 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 a comfy, it, it, cozy movie. We're just it's comfy. It. It's yeah. yeah yeah. Just just yeah, so it's, it's I don't I don't want film. I don't want to have I don't have to worry about like oh we'll get to that later. Let's just just we'll, I want to make our. If point, I may, so. just for just for a minute, because I actually made a note about this. Um, and it's it's on topic, and it, and and it just sort of I think also speaks to the quote unquote Craig spoiler Schaefer issues. Plays. Sorry, Go, Craig Schaefer is oh, the way you played. Oh, is and, the name uh, of the actor? And, okay, yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, I've never Robert heard Redford of him, directed right? and did the voiceovers, so that's this is one of uh, Redford's last big. Interesting. Um, yeah, so the the film deliberately plays with this expectation that, like, essentially one of the brothers and I guess the other brother is going to die. It just constantly said, like, one of the first, like, um, things that happens after there's a there's a establishing shot of you know the 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 childhood. And then you get one or two little vignettes uh, about how you know stubborn the the brother was, and then immediately they're adolescents and they commandeer a boat and do something really dangerous. And they're you know and and it's sort of it's set up to be like a you know tragic boyhood death 
an impact on author. I mean, we've seen this, you know, a million times and like stand by me and all these kind of, I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's a genre of its own, um, as a kind of storytelling device, especially in Hollywood. So that expectation is very deliberate and, and it was there kind of throughout, they mentioned his gambling debts, um, early in the film, kind of obvious foreshadowing. And then there's like a, there's a really weird emotional scene towards the end of the film where they're doing the exact same thing as in the beginning about the, you know, danger in the river. He's, he's hooking the biggest rainbow trout anybody ever saw. And he goes down the waterfall and doesn't emerge for like too long. And it's sort of being set up as this tragic, tragic death thing. And, and, um, but then it just, it's like, ah, got you. There's this, the, 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 the director does this, like, you thought that I was going to play in it right into this trope, but I'm actually smarter than that trope because I've made you fall for it. And then it immediately cuts to actually like the literally the next scene after that ends is, oh, by the way, you know, come to the police station. Uh, your brother's dead. <laughs> you got beaten to death. <laughs> and it's like, OK, I mean, so what was the point of the fake out or like why it was just a very strange directorial decision, I, I felt. Um, but anyway, uh, I think, that, I think part, yeah, we'll get so, to that. But I think that part that plays into kind of like the Protestant themes of this film, which and, and the work because of the, the strong Presbyterian background of these very real people. But I, I don't want to jump into that just yet. So, I yeah, the brother didn't die in Montana. That's what I was surprised by. Like, that's what you were telling us, D.E.? Yes, it was. a Yes, there, go on. D.E., you there? Oh God, you're <laughs> muted. Sorry, I was muted because I was sneezing because of my cold. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry. No worries. Okay. Anyway, uh, um, Reverend John Norman McLean. His church is still there in Missoula. Uh, I've been there. Uh, has two sons, Norman and Paul. Uh, Norman, that the actually goes to Dartmouth. Uh, does well teaches a little bit, then gets the job at University of Chicago. Paul, unlike in the film, actually does go to Dartmouth to following his brother after doing like one year at the, what I think, University of Montana in Missoula. Uh, still an excellent school, actually. He has a great history program. Uh, uh, and then uh, he follows his brother to Chicago, and that's where he's beaten to death, in the south side of Chicago in 1938. So that's a, that's a, a critical omission when you're trying to not be racist is even in 1938, the South side of Chicago was not exactly full of Scots Presbyterians. So, um, some of the stuff of like, Oh, he'll never leave Montana or anything like that, uh, was heightened there for heightened drama. But as a film, it's excellent. It totally deserved the best Oscar, uh, best cinematography Oscar at one. The the shots are just gorgeous. Um, they they almost capture how pretty that part of Montana is. Uh, I had a I had a note. Um, the camera really likes to linger, and I would be an annoyed if the scenery weren't so pretty. Yeah. Yes. It was, it was actually I forget what the what the next movie Robert Redford directed after this was, but it ended up being in Montana again, and not far from where they had filmed this. And he deliberately made sure that they didn't go to the same spot where they had filmed because th th he felt there was something sacred about that, especially with the, with the cinematography they did for this film. He didn't, he didn't want to risk having to, having done it twice, like, you know, just repeating himself. There was something he wanted, to, he wanted to be kept special specifically for this film. 
yeah. So I I think that there's a well, I was surprised it was only rated PG. Um, I my memory of it was like that it was a little bit racier than that. Uh, I had a but, note on this too. Sorry, go on. But I had a note ahead. on the because there is well, so there is nudity in the film. Um, there's a a kind of um, in the middle fluff section. There's like a uh, the romance story where Norm meets his future wife and she has an asshole brother who is like a rich preppy kid from California. They're, I guess the family's from California anyway. So he shows up and gets drunk with some town whore type, not, you know, floozy. Um, and, uh, and they, the agreement is that they're the Norm and his brother, Paul are going to take, uh, this guy fishing but he shows up late, super drunk, passes out. They go fishing, leaving him alone. When they come back, he's drunk all the beer and passed out naked in the um, grass next to this girl. Um, and they have to, like, take their sunburned bodies back. The The thing that the note that I had about it was um, I didn't realize until the end of the film. So there was something off about, like, the way that the, the naked human body was being presented. But I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And then I, um, at the end of the film, when they say, um, oh, your brother's body was discovered, he was beaten to death, and they broke every bone in his hand, and blah, blah, blah. Um, I realized what had, it wasn't that there was something that was off about the scene. It was that um, my brain had been warped <laughs> because uh, if this were a movie made today, or really at any point past, like, yeah, 1992, they would have shown you fr- some amount of frontal nudity. Uh, in the, in the, you know, in the nineties, two thousand, late nineties, two thousands, it would have been her boobs at least. And if it were, you know, today it would probably be his junk. Uh, and in the, and then they would, and after telling you about how his body was, was, um, beaten so badly, they would cut to a shot of the morgue and they would like show you his bloodied face and his broke. It would be like gore porn. You would get both. And that what was like setting me, I was like, there's something that I can't put my finger on. And that was what I couldn't put my finger on was how differently it was presented in 1992 versus how it would be presented pretty much any point past that. Yeah. I think that's a, I can just see it now, you know, like the, the, the mangled hand like flops out of the morgue drawer. Right. And, and, you know, Um, Yeah. The other note I had about this is like connected to Holocaust propaganda question mark. Like, yeah, I mean, in terms of we were talking, you know, because we're we're, as we're recording this, this is sort of at the time period where people talking about mouse because it was recently, quote unquote, banned, (laughs) not by a um, uh, this school board in Tennessee. Entirely appropriately, you know, well, if it had been an actual ban. But yes. But anyway, so uh, no, it's it's that um, like mouse is is part of this genre of Holocaust propaganda of just like I think they like the the reason why they want to ban stuff is is uh, or the reason why they want to they, they want to get you acculturated to seeing these images, right? They want to like burn it in your brain. It's all the better to traumatize you with. And I was like, well, I'm not being traumatized by nudity right now. What's wrong? You know what I mean? Yeah, I I think that's it. A- Boys, are you okay? Are we? Boys, are you there? Well, I, I think you may that, have had to step out for a minute. Sorry, go yeah. on. Uh, well, I think that uh, I haven't read the book. I, I think I actually might pick it up now. I, I'm Borzo's read it, I think. And uh, the prose, if if Robert Redford in his narration is quoting from the prose, 
the prose is excellent and I would like to read the book. Um, but I think that, uh, the fact that they're Scotch Presbyterians is, is very, it's very much there. And, but very understated. And, uh, I think that we need to, or rather like the shock of like, Oh, that girl has a tattoo. Like, Oh my gosh. What? You know, yes, whereas, the, like, yes. like, like, yes. whereas now it's like, Oh, that girl doesn't have a tattoo. Wow. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that was, I mean, the, 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 the movie has very strong, like, this is what they took from us vibes. Like it's, it's impossible. I think even in 1992 people would have, then it would have been kind of like a bluebell ice cream, like, you know, um, Remember when, you know, Pappy used to, you know, smoke down by the river or something, um, which is fine. But but it's it's now it's like, remember when we had a country, you know, like it's it's a completely it's a completely different level. And um, and a big part of that is is, uh, yeah, the, it, the, in, in a lot of ways, the dress styles are. I mean, also chronologically closer to what you think of as being 1800s dress than is than than current dress, and um, a big part of that is modesty on the women, number one, and and then just a sense of style, a sense of like self-respect, uh, even on on the men. It was it was nice seeing men in like three-piece suits and you know button-down vests and and like I'm sure part of that was just you know, Hollywood being Hollywood, but I don't think that it wasn't like they were wearing, you know, they they weren't portraying, you know, fets in LA or something. These are, you know, just nice people in rural Montana. And I think it didn't strike me as unrealistic for the time and place. And and everybody looked really nice. Okay. They're Hollywood beautiful, but so, you know, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's an aesthetic and, and it's very noticeable. Sure. I mean, like, uh, aside from a couple of scenes where they're like, uh, where they're like going in the rowboat, right? Uh, then they they very noticeably strip out of their jackets, uh, and like first thing, like fishing or something, they're always wearing ties. Always, like jackets and ties are normal, and I think that that was actually pretty normative up until uh, almost everyone's always wearing a hat. Uh, that's one other thing I noticed. Uh, up until like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 1950, that, maybe. My understanding is it was Kennedy who killed. It was it was John F. Kennedy who killed that. Yeah, yeah, was killed the hat. Yeah, one of his many sins. Uh, so, uh, I think that I think that um, it's very interesting because, and I'm looking up Roger, whatever movie Robert Redford did next, but uh, uh, I think that. Um, we have this sense of like, you know, model T's everywhere, well-dressed people, an actual community where everybody knows, you know, Oh, Norman McLean is, is off at Dartmouth, you know, at the big college and he's doing well. And, and, you know, the whole town's proud of him and, uh, you know, he's on the boxing team and he's, he's, he's the hometown boy made good. Uh, I think that that was a, Uh, something that could have maybe not continued into the 20th century, but certainly didn't need to get 
uh, as blown up as it did. And so, yeah, yeah. I, I wonder how, cause I think we're both, um, on the somewhat older side for, for this thing. Um, I mean, I'm not a zoomer. I think that's, I don't think that's common I, anyway. So the point is like, I wonder how zoomers and younger are gonna, would, would react to this film. First of all, at like an, um, uh, just an aesthetic level. Like we, we keep talking about the cinematography and yes, I mean, I, I was obviously had a bunch of notes and I, I, I believe it was up for best picture. I don't know what it was competing against in 1992. I ultimately, I mean, while I liked it and it was definitely very cozy, I don't, I don't know that it was like a great film. It was, de- it was definitely a good one. Um, the, uh, but, but the, 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 the cinematography won and, and, um, and that strikes me as appropriate. I, I can't imagine a, a better shot film then or pretty much. I mean, it's pretty much a, just like this is I actually had a note on, on that uh, specifically the uh, what was it? The camera doesn't think you're dumb, nor does the script completely alien experience than latest Marvel product film as art form as opposed to visual experience for pure entertainment. Um, and uh, yeah, the camera doesn't think you're dumb. It's also just shooting this beautiful scenery and and but it also as i said earlier it likes to linger i wonder how the attention span of zoomers would do against that but i also wonder i, I, I gotta tell you it, i struggled with it sometimes too oh no me me too for yeah and i'm i'm you know an old man so but I, I i was you know i saw this movie when it came out in 92 or 93 or something and uh you know um i think i saw it on video after it had come out uh uh, in theaters or something or you you know for like not necessarily that i grew up in a real america but that i grew up with people who had lived their whole lives just about in a real america and and so you know images and and cultural touchstones of things like um you know uh fly fishing in the river um i never been fly fishing in a river but uh you know it, it, it meant something to me I, mean, I could sort of like connect with that at a at a you know cultural historical level is yeah you know these are this is like it, it just oh. it, it felt like america feels like america right you know like bluebell ice well, cream yeah, you know yeah. what i mean I, <laughs> right it, it does and and uh i won't get too <clears throat> into it but uh, i'm familiar with the area and it was crazy the amount of people that like just showed up and wanted to fly fish in western montana in yeah, 1993 i bet when it came out i think they said they i just got back there was like a sixty percent increase in all fly fishing in that area. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was nuts. Well, it, it, there was a weird like <laughs> double because I, I saw uh, Norman McLean's son John McLean. I was reading an article about it. It was kind of a double edged sword because yeah, basically you had all of these uh, people like flooding the area, and you know obvi- obviously kind of removed some of the majesty of it, and there was a problem of a possible problem of overfishing. But because because by that point. A lot of the river had become polluted as well. You had people who came and saw the river and were very concerned about the state of it. So money was raised to try and clean up the river as well. So it was kind of a double-edged sword situation from what, from what at least what John McLean, yes. John McLean said. Yeah, uh, that very much tracks with my experience. And they actually, they filmed the ser- they filmed it on the other side of the divide in the Gallatin River, which is one of the rivers that is uh, the source of uh, the Missouri. So uh, on the other side of the divide. But still very pretty. Um, so, yeah, kind of something the, you guys were talking about. Like, oh, um, if you have a point there, I'll let you wrap well, up. Well, I, I'll, Montana and the frontier of the early 20th century, and the Indian question was one of the first notes I had on here. But I'll let you wrap up what you were saying there. 
well, like everything, it was beautifully shot. But but even like the interior of the of the McLean home comports with my experience, you know. And um, I just thought it was really, really well shot. Um, they'd done a good job of like um, explaining or like showing, not telling. Um, uh, so. I thought the, the whole thing, not, ju- not just the beautiful outdoor scenery, it's like, look at this mountain, you know, whoa. And uh, let me, you know, get this beautiful shot of fly fishing. And I, I, the, they, they almost do it justice. You know, there, there is something about being on one of these rivers, one of these great Western rivers fly fishing that is uh, truly amazing. Oh, I'm sure it is quite a, you know, that that's a, yeah, the, I think basically the first, the first shots in the film are about the father, the, 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 the minister, um, teaching them how to listen. The, the fly fishing, the, the, what is it? that's the opening line, right? The, the, uh, oh, I don't have it um, here, but it's it's uh, basically that there's no distinction be- between fly fishing and, and, and faith uh, or, you know, practicing Christianity. And, and spirituality maybe was the quote. I don't remember. And anyway, there's, it was... There's um, no clear line, clear line between fly fishing and church. And church, that's right. And... Um, and then the father is like, okay, but you you know put your fish put your fishing poles down and listen to the river and you know because like the 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 rocks took million hundred million years to form but beneath that there was the sound um, beneath that but you got to put your you got to listen carefully and, and you know they they put their ears to the river and then the, you know the fades of black shot changes great 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 stuff but um, the the uh, um, I forgot where we were. Sorry, I, I think Borzoi wanted to talk also about the um, the uh, the Indian question because I do think that that I mean I, I unfortunately I guess he's not here. I did he had to step out for a second to take care of his um, kid. But the uh, I, I mean I don't know as much I guess as certainly probably either of you do. How how much do you know about like 1920s Indian relations in Montana? Uh, I know a bit about it, but not a lot. I see. Um, I can't imagine. So, I can't imagine they were particularly friendly, but I don't know. No, I mean you got to remember in 1920. Um, you know they were only uh, 35 years away from from violence. You know, yeah, so that's not the, not even living in, memory. In, that's 18, like, in yeah. the 1880s, there were there were there was you know still violence. It wasn't. I mean, imagine it, imagine your imagine your uncle who fought against. The Japanese at Iwo Jima, in you know, in 1980, right? Yeah, maybe not quite that level of violence. Okay, fine, but still. Well, no, right. no, actually, th- that kind of level of violence. The, the uh, contemporary narratives surrounding Native Americans are almost entirely ridiculous because this idea that, um, oh gosh, it's, it's, I think it's the film Hostiles, but there's that one scene where you know, like. You came, uh, you know, one of the, like a colonel's talking to Sitting Bull, and he's like, "You came out of the Minnesota woodlands with guns and killed all these people, and then moved into the Black Hills to take their take their land and take their game, and and you know, you were you were here, you know, recently because you just wanted the stuff, and uh, it wasn't until really the 20th century that uh, the question was settled. It wasn't." Like settled, settled. Um, 
So, and yeah, Custer's last stand was what, like the 1880s or something, right? Do I have that right? Let me look that up. But yeah, it, it was that. I think it was like 1885 or something. I have to double check. But um, but yeah, no, I mean it's it's uh, maybe that was maybe that was earlier. But again, that's not. I mean, even if it was like in the 1860s, like uh, no, it wasn't the 1860s. I, um, I don't think it was. Yeah, what is this? When did this take place? Uh, 1876, 1876. So yeah, like 50 years earlier, right? Was Custer's last stand. Like, <laughs> just for, for, you know, it's, it's a different kind of a thing. And, and if you ever read, uh, I'm, I know, I know you did, but, uh, in the audience, uh, Blood Meridian, um, uh, by Cormac McCarthy, like, okay, that was again, that was about Southwestern, uh, reds, but, uh, I think, you know, certain things are, obviously going to be in common and, and yeah, I mean, a propensity for a tribal version of total war seems to be one of them. Right. Um, I mean, there, there, you had that experience. The first colony was wiped out Roanoke, right. By, by Indians. Um, and, uh, and, uh, there's a con, it was an experience of, of the Eastern Indians of the Southern Indians and, and of the Western Indians that, you know, they, they, you know, waged a certain kind of total war. And, uh, and yeah, I, and so that that's why. So the reason why we bring it up is there is a, a minor plot point in the story, uh, in the narrative. I, should, I don't know. It's not really much of a story ultimately, but um, the uh, uh, well, or not like, much of a plot. Like sitting, I would say. sitting Bull didn't die until 1890. Wow! There you go. Right there you go. Yeah. Wow. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and. Uh, and and so there was this so so there was this so the, I guess who was it Paul has an Indian girlfriend um and yeah, well and half Indian yeah half Indian whatever and which, which tre- is like yeah if I could just please please on this point for just a second so Norman McLean or John Norman McLean the Reverend the father his family came from Gaelic speaking Canada which is is a thing in particularly in the Maritimes yeah you mentioned that uh, in the pre-show and I was like. Fuck, that's rad. Like that's just like wow. Uh, so, so, and, and even in in uh, some places, the 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 purest Gaelic that you that you'll find is is in parts of Canada. I bet. Yeah, um, I bet. So uh, they're they're trying to rescue that language, but um, the French and the Scots, right? Uh, the whole Métis people in Canada, um, was French and Scottish fur traders, um, uh. And some English, but but mostly you know French and Scots. That's who scuttled Canada, you know, from Nova Scotia all the way west. Uh, was was a lot of Scots, and a lot of them took Indian wives. And so you know it was pretty normative for uh, that in that part of the world in English, the English side, and uh, until relatively recently, Montana was you know Anglo-German basically. Um, getting more uh, Mexicans recently, but but mostly just Anglo-German, uh, you know that that kind of Scandinavian a little bit, but but mostly. Uh, so that was kind of normal, and even under today, uh, what tends to happen is the uh, more competent better looking native women like decide that they're going to marry a white dude and then they leave the res and everyone else is stuck. 
excuse me. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of what happens. Um, and half or quarter or, you know, um, mixes would, would be pretty common. Uh, most, most, uh, that would be the, the people you would see out and about in, in white societies would be mixes. Um, almost everyone else would just stay to the reservation. Okay. I'm back. What a, just, what a cursed episode this has been. The Borsling is down for a nap though. So I think I can participate. In the Fantastic. The show now. What are you guys talking about? We were just talking about, we had pivoted to your topic. The, um, the Indian question. Yeah. Um, we were talking. We we mostly we were talking about it in a general sense, kind of marveling over, marveling over the the uh, fact that like uh, even if you think about it, the uh, Custer's last stand was 1876, and um, and uh, Sitting Bull didn't die till 1890. So that would have been very much a living memory question. Not even not even living memory, like people's lived experiences of waging total war against savages, um, as framing part of this uh, thing. But. Uh, Sorry, go yeah. on. And the and that's why the, the Indian question is kind of a interesting as because it especially as time has gone on, it's really kind of you know gone into the background. Especially as when they focus on race, they focus on blacks first, and then maybe Mexicans next. But the the Native American, the indigenous people, whatever you want to call them, I, I, the Indian, the the red man. Let's go with the red man. Uh, the red man has completely disappeared from the kind of the American cult and cultural scape and even the, a lot of the day-to-day lived experiences, unless you're out in the areas where they still have some presence. Then if you live out there, like you're, you're very familiar with, with experiences with them, but you don't see that yes. depicted very often. No. And in fact, it, it's, um, almost you know, the Westerns in the fifties, right? Uh, you know, red men were, were, a constant presence. Uh, and Taylor Sheridan, the uh, director of uh, Yellowstone and Wind River and others, he's kind of, for you know liberal reasons, is kind of trying to center Native Americans inside his stories. But he's the only one you could see <coughs> doing it on a large scale, excuse me. And really focusing on that. But um, the almost complete disappearance of Native Americans post-Civil Rights Movement is, uh, well, it's an evil Jewish plot, really, but isn't everything. Uh, uh, because in, you know, Norman McLean was born in, like, 1904 or something. It, you know, his father would have known people, had, had had people in his church who would fight Indians. Yeah. You know. L. Ron Hubbard, because uh, he was greatest generation. He was he served. He didn't. He served during World War II. But part of his whole elaborate backstory, because he spent time in Montana, is he made up a bunch of stories about being accepted into like I think it was like the Blackfoot tribe, and you know he, he did he did you know back you know when not we we make fun of boomers for talking about like their Native American ancestor or what have you. But I mean. Uh, that was a tradition, you know, of just making up bullshit about the about the uh, the red man that has gone back. It's an American tradition, basically, and because of the of the exposure and experience that was still tapering off in the early twentieth century, when L. Ron Hubbard was making up stories about his, you know, his interactions with the Blackfoot people and being accepted among one of them and all that, it 
sounded almost plausible to people who just didn't know better because that was still within the American mythos, the uh, the American idea. It's funny, especially with all this liberal ideology that permeates everything now. You would think they would try to amplify that the origins of America as you know with the with with the natives, but all they get all they get is an own on white people. That's all. That's the only thing that they they're used as a cudge is like of like whenever white people complain about immigration, they bring up the red man and then they never bring him up again. Well, okay, so go ahead. The the according to Wikipedia, so take that with a grain of salt, right? But the Indian Wars didn't end till 1924, and there were there were battles in. 1918 in the Battle of Bear Valley, the last massacre of Battle of Kelly Creek in 1911, the Crazy Snake Rebellion in 1909, Battle of Sugar Point in 1898. Um, I mean, they they still call it the standoffs, like we up and through the 70s that they had with the American Indian Movement battle. Like they call it, what was it? Um, uh, that, I, I was just looking for the American Indian. Movement. I was like, didn't they fight? Like, didn't they call it battles with the American Indian Movement? That was in like the fifties. Yeah, and going yeah, up into uh, the seventies to the point to yeah. the point when um because I can't what was it called the the really famous one in the seventies I can't remember off the top of my head but when Marlon Brando won Russell the Oscar yeah but when Marlon ba- Brando won the Oscar I think it was for The Godfather he sent uh an Indian woman in his place because of, of protest of what the feds we're doing with the with the American Indian movement. Um, I, I, I'm pretty sure that was for when he won The Godfather. And it's because of that incident, the Academy no longer allowed basically people to be... They they, made, they changed some rule because basically Marlon Brando made a political... did a whole... A whole did a politics when uh, he, d- he didn't want to accept the award in person, so he sent an Indian in his place to do it in order to protest what the federal government was doing with the American Indian movement. God, what was the name right. of that... God, what was the name of that? Uh, of that the Alcatraz standoff. Um, battle. I keep wanting to say Wounded Knee, or like it had a name uh, similar uh, to the Wounded Knee massacre. Is that what? Oh, that's eighteen ninety. Uh, so what was? Oh God, what was the the one? With, it must have been with Russell Means. Yeah, yeah, no. It, um. So kind of, you know, it's a fraught conversation, uh, and. Certainly, very complicated, and even in t- today, you know, in Montana, there's some of there's some of the mystique of like, oh, well, we have to respect these people and their land, and look at them how they're all in touch with it. And I do know a couple of boomers that were like, I was totally accepted by the Blackfoot, not Blackfeet, Blackfoot, the Blackfoot tribe. You know, very, you know. Oh, they, uh, okay. They they just call it the Wounded Knee occupation or the Second Wounded Knee. Okay, that's what I was thinking of. Right. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, so. Uh, there's the kind of on the one hand, this this is this is like our our struggle, our comf, as it were, as Americans, is like taking this entire continent for ourselves. But uh, because we're like you know that uh, Presbyterian mindset. Like, are we really righteous? Did we deserve this, or did we do it, you know, evil when we did this? You know, like, um, I think that I don't know if this movie necessarily touches on those, but the idea of like the son of a minister being involved with uh, a half Indian woman would have certainly been scandalous in, um, well, at any time before nineteen fifty or nineteen sixty. 
certainly by 1920 standards, it would have been, you know, hair raising. Yeah. And there, that's something to kind of discuss as well, because yes, there was, you know, there were obviously relations between the white, the whites and the reds, but that was always fraught with a lot of tension. And oftentimes it would be a, you know, people were aware of it was going on, but that was like, that's supposed to be like a frontier thing. And it was definitely looked down upon the, um, what were they called? The musk. So in Michigan, the muskrat French were the the that basically Michigan was the fur was about the the southwestern furthest territory of New France, and so the French that populated in the Michigan territory were called the muskrat French because, uh, and they were allowed to eat muskrat during Lent due to the limit you know the limitations of food that they had. But they compared to the French that were in Canada, they were much less. Numerous, and so when the American, when the British and then the Americans uh, took over the territory and were dealing with them, they had a very dim view of of the French because they basically they saw them as degenerated Europeans because they had basically completely mixed with the local population and just saw them as well. <laughs> if they were white at one point, they ain't white anymore because they had completely just become like this ragtag. I mean, of course, this is from the Anglo perspective. So who knows if they were, uh, if they were playing that up a little bit, if they were exaggerating. But they just saw them as right. Just, this, this, just this, 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 yeah, this Indian uh, mingling riffraff. Right. You know, the wogs start at Calais, and then they mix with other wogs, and so they're extra <laughs> super devil wog. Right. Like, uh, I don't know, but it is worth noting. Right, that um, you can almost see, you know, coming from the, like history's perspective, right? So these these dour Scots had, you know, two children, two sons, and then the one son dies relatively young with no children, as far as he knows. And this, uh, you know, Norman, he himself only has two children, so he's kind of bowing out of the race, as it were, voluntarily. Because the race war has been one, so we don't need soldiers for the race war. So we can just have, you know, two and be comfortable. Well, I mean, they're Scots. They're, they're thrifty. Like, why, why why need four when you can have two? Fair, fair point. Ba- bad joke. <laughs> uh, no. That's all right. No, I... I, I uh, Overall, I think it's an excellent, excellent film. I would totally uh, encourage everyone to watch it. And I don't know that there's necessarily all these deeper themes in there, but I do think that they're worth exploring, right? Because there's this kind of duality in the American character, right? You've got this religious side, this austere side that's um, very you know, uh, keep your nose to the guardian suit and your eyes on God, I guess. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, uh, I was very, I was very struck by it. That was the thing that struck me the most about this movie is, and why I brought I had a lot of mentions to America at the turn of the century and all that, because I, and I bring this up a lot. I don't mean to keep hammering on this point, but you would think if you're in this scene, you would think, if it's representative of white America, wow, then like America must be like 40% Roman Catholic. Cause like, no, uh, it's about, I believe, I believe it's about 20 to 25% uh, 
Roman Catholic at best, and only ten, like only about ten to fifteen percent of that would be white ethnic Catholic. We've always been a minority in this country. The the yeah, the, and, the wasp and, and the Protestant, almost, yeah, the Anglo, the wasp, the Protestant have completely disappeared from the American conscious cultural consciousness on some level. But this movie shows like what it, this country was was for them at the turn of the century. It's it. I was right. very struck. Yeah, go ahead. Well, and not only were the the Catholics a minority, they were almost exclusively uh, on the East Coast in the big cities. Yeah, we were so, city folk. Yeah, right. Um, and it, the first major toehold of of uh, uh, Catholics on the West Coast was the Italians in San Francisco, and that was that wasn't until the twentieth century. Yeah, and so what I what I found really the part the the early parts of the movie are the ones that are really the ones that really kind of captured me because it's the way he talks about fishing and the way that he fuses it with their Presbyterianism and I guess because I've been I've, yeah. despite being like you know I, I've I've been Orthodox and Catholic but I did have I have very 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 little Protestant roots it's just the the remnants kind of my Anglo heritage is where you can find the last gasp of some of the protestant heritage so i've always kind of had this even though i, I didn't really come from a religious family the, the the ethnic catholic thing really is real and i've always been struck by protestantism as like an outsider looking in especially because it's so intense to all the stuff that people like about what the united states used to be about for better or for worse that is intrinsic to its protestantism and its protestant construct it's nice that it's nice that some of them were nice to the catholics and, and allowed them in i mean i i appreciate that but it this was a country that was built by a very unique protestant mindset and so when he calls like their fishing style presbyterian style and he he describes fishing as this it's it, it it's art and it's grace all at the same time. It has this very religious flavor that's very inimitable. Like, I don't even fully grasp what he means by it, but I do sense it on the intuitive <laughs> level. I there was so there was like this the the opening montage um, that I keep referencing in the in the start at the start of the film includes this um uh really funny and striking scene. So when he first said there's no difference between fly fishing and church, I immediately thought they were going in a direction of like, he was, you know, he was a fake pastor or something who I just didn't know anything about the movie or the story. So I thought I was like, Oh, okay. He's just like kind of checked out. Cause he just really likes fishing or something. Um, but that wasn't it at all, of course. And, and then there was this, uh, it cut to at one point to this scene of the father, teaching the boys proper fishing motion with the assistance of a metronome and sort of it, he was involving their bodies in the movement and he, he was teaching them rhythm, you know, uh, fine motor control, a bunch of things kind of all at once through bodily exercise. And it was striking to me because this is like, it, it struck me as not intentionally, but, very much of a piece with like training montages and like, you know, Kung Fu flicks or something like it, it's that kind of vibe. Um, maybe intentionally, I don't know. Um, I assume it's from a real, like you, uh, Borzo, you were saying the, to your recollection, the, the story, the movie follows the film follows the, the novella. Um, 
it's pretty, pretty it's much pre- one to it's, one. It's a pretty religious adaptation, pun intended. Yeah, very well. <laughs> yes, nice. I see what you did there. And uh, <laughs> the the um, uh, the so I imagine that that little vignette is in the um, novella. I'd be curious to, to to read it and see sort of how Norman McLean um, which which part describes it. I have I actually have it pulled up it, right here at the so. very. It's like it would be at the very start. Are you talking about, are you talking like, about like teaching, talking about Presbyterian style and all that? Is that the specific? Uh, part you're you're asking well about. as I, as i recall in the mo- i don't know where it, it's yeah basically but i don't know how big how long that section is or like where exactly it would be because it was a montage it was like it was basically two shots as i recall of like the metronome and the father doing the motion um i i think and, the, i and, think the intro basically just completely is word for word the anytime like there's narration it's basically word for word from the uh, novella. Here's what it says right here. Even so, in a typical week of our childhood, Paul and I probably received as many hours of instruction in fly fishing as we did in all other spiritual matters. After my brother and I became good fishermen, we realized that our father was not a great fly caster, but he was accurate and stylish and wore a glove on his casting hand. As he buttoned his glove in preparation to giving us a lesson, he would say, it is an art that is performed on a four-count rhythm between 10 and 2 o'clock. As a Scot and a, and a Presbyterian, my father believed that man by nature was a mess and had fallen from an original state of grace. Somehow, I early developed the notion that he had done this by falling from a tree. As for my father, I never knew whether he believed God was a mathematician, but he certainly believed God could count, and that only by picking up God's rhythms were we able to regain power and beauty. Unlike many Presbyterians, he often used the word beautiful. And then it kind of goes on from there about... Um, uh, yeah. Okay. So that's interesting. So it does. So they they I guess shot what that ten to two sounds like, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and then here, right? Well, until man is redeemed, he will always take a fly rod too far back, just as a, as natural man always overswings with an axe or golf club and loses all his power somewhere in the air. Only with a rod, it's worse because the fly often comes so far back it gets caught behind in a bush or rock. When my father said it was an art that ended at 2 o'clock, he often added closer to 12 than to 2, meaning that the rod should be taken back only slightly farther than overhead, straight overhead being 12 o'clock. So basically, the, the movie just took the the text and condensed it because it would have been a very long narration if they had done it completely word for word. Uh, but it's interesting because well it, yeah, it was very well done. They, they, they basically tracked that monologue in some very interesting and cozy shots. Yep. What are you going to say, D.E.? Well, and uh, when the boys are uh, notably, this is the first appearance of Joseph Gordon-Levitt on yeah, film. I, 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 was like, I was looking at it, I was like, I know that kid. Who is that? Uh, but um, when the boys are practicing fishing and young Paul goes too far back, right? And catches it in the trees and then needs his brother's help. Like that tracks my experience very well. It's very annoying to have that happen while you're casting. Uh, no, I, I. There was this vast Anglo wasp, well, wasp right? Where Calvinists, like especially because the, they're, they're Presbyterian, which is the Scottish, basically the Scottish form of the Reformed Church. Right, right, but uh, but you like like where you would look askance at the Dutch, right? Like if you if you're not like Anglo, Irish, like uh, or Scottish or Welsh or something, you're you're strange. Um, that they are the people that built and settled America. Really, I, there was a lot of Germans that kind of infilled in the middle, 
uh, in the eight, latter half of the 19th century, particularly from 1848 onwards. But they weren't the ones who, you know, settled the territory. Uh, they showed up when uh, the territory had already been conquered. And um, you've got this duality of, you know, this hard-drinking, gambling, uh, kind of very, uh, maybe not addicted to fun, but like work-shy sort of side of things where like, rather be fishing than working and then you've got this you know like keep your nose to the grindstone and eyes on god sort of like like this is like even fishing right we have to do it seriously we have to be and um i don't know if it was like deliberately set up that way or this is just the two sides of the celtic character um but uh you could I mean, you could see that all through American life of of like on the one hand like uh, you know I'd rather be sitting with a jug under a tree fishing or like gotta get to work and I think that that's uh, admirably portrayed in the film. I mean the the religious aspect is actually very brilliantly understated and like they let you know I mean they talk about Presbyterian style and all that but if you're not you some of the stuff you might not pick up on if you're not into kind of in, into like the nuances of Christian theology and the like, but you can, you can pair a lot of what happens in the movie with, with what they talk about in that opening scene, specifically, you know, in the context of grace, you know, for people who may not understand this, the stuff that, you know, grace is the help that's given to us by God because God desires it. We don't, there's nothing we can do to earn grace. Uh, Grace is bestowed upon us by the mercy and love of God, and for Calvinist churches, like that's a, that that is a point they hit on especially hard in their theology, and you can you can actually understand the ending of the movie through that is that through the grace of God, he captures Paul captures this this amazing giant trout, but that doesn't mean like he you know that. You you don't like through acts earn your salvation. God's you know what what God's will is is God's will. God determines that. And in the next scene, he's taken. Now, does that mean his soul is in a is in is in a state of grace at his death? Has he achieved salvation? We will never know because only God knows that. You can you can read this as a very Calvinist film. Yeah, indeed. Uh, yeah. I think that's a great There's, point. Sorry. Yeah. The, the whole predestination thing, um, like, were, was TK uh, kind of touched on it earlier. Like, there's all these, like, did Paul almost die here or almost here or almost here? You know, there were two or three times where where they could have done the whole, uh, was it, you know, sibling dies young affects author thing that you talked about, DK. But, like, I, I uh, you know, what was he? Was he just born to hang? I, I think that that's a, a very Calvinist sort of question, yep. right? God knows his own, and we don't, right? You know, tulip, right? Total depravity. Uh, let's see you. Uh, oh, it's um, but, un, un, I think it's uh, the the U uh, is uh, unconditional something. I'm just gonna pull it up. Okay. Uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, T is T is total depravity. U is uh, unconditional election. L is for limited atonement. I is for irresistible grace, and P is right. for perseverance right. okay. of the saints. Right. So irresistible grace, right? Like grace is something that's almost kind of forced down your throat, whether you want it or not. Like you just you're going to either have it or not, and it's up to the will of God. It's yeah. almost a very Islamic conception. The, li- uh, the limited atonement thing is the one that really kind of gets Calvinists into a lot of arguments with with people because it's based off of the the reading of uh, like Matthew twenty twenty eight that Jesus died for many. He didn't die for all. He died for many, according to their reading of right. it. So, so it's it's actually funny when you study some when you look into some like the Calvinist theology and some and other Protestant forms as well, but especially Calvinism when you hear like the the, the bad faith libtard critiques of Christianity is like uh ask a Calvinist sometime if that's what they believe because they don't believe that. They believe they, right. they believe in limited uh, actually, atonement. Uh actually uh I grew up Catholic even though part of my family is is these Dower Scots Presbyterians. Um the uh folks over at Tribal Theocrat and um uh, were the first like serious uh, intellectual Protestants I'd ever run across, right? Because most, you know, let's all, all due respect to our evangelical friends, like they're not like serious scholars, right? Like, well, Pentecostals and, are the same uh, way as well. Sorry to any Pentecostal right. listeners, but it's just there's a, you guys have a have a reputation, and I don't think it's undeserved. Are there Pentecostal white nationalists? I haven't met any. Uh, uh probably know. not. There are a lot of there are a lot of Calvinists, but a lot of Presbyterian white. That a Calvinist I've seen a bunch, and you know our friend uh, and on, on post, uh, uh, but but Calvinists I've seen like that kind of low church Pentecostal I have not seen. Anyway, if, if, if they're so, white nationalists, it's probably like a more kind of. I don't, I don't, I don't want to say grug form of it, but I think it would be like a more conservative leaning type, right? But, anyway, it doesn't really matter. Well, no, but it does because, or the fact that these people are Presbyterians does matter because, um, you know, there are the great Southern Presbyterians like uh, Dabney and others. That there is an intellectual tradition in America of serious Presbyterian scholarship that, um was frankly racist, uh, that, that, you know, is, uh, needs to be engaged with. If you're going to, if you're going to do what we're doing at all, like, I'm sorry, you need to, you need to go to, you know, tribal theocrat and check these guys out and understand. Go ahead, finish your point and then I'll jump in there. Uh, and, um, understand where these people came from, because that's, if you're going to call back to, Oh, we need to be back like America at the founding, like the serious intellectual heavyweights of, you know, the first century of American life were mostly, it was like, uh, there were, there were some Anglicans or Episcopalians or whatever, but, uh, it was also a lot of Presbyterians. And I think yeah. that, uh, go ahead. I was going to say, it's, it's funny because I actually do have, I mean, like if you want to go into like, if you want to ascend into like the big brain autistic reactionary sphere of things, uh, I do have some philosophical, and re- and obviously religious issues with Calvinism, but it's not in like the re- neo reactionary reactionary mulbuggian sense 
with like of blaming things on the the Calvinists because those the, pres- the universal unitarian yeah. universalists that control I, all our institutions. I, I do take so, I do take issue that uh, at least especially the Dutch Calvinists buddied buddied up with with Jews. But it's like I if you go through any church, you're gonna find stuff you're you're not gonna like in terms of like, the relationship with Jews. So that's like if you if you want to look for things that make you mad, you will find things that make you mad. But the more and more I learned and 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 studied about them. I have I have this respect for them. Even like a lot of the problems come from like kind of them being like this like rising bourgeoisie. Like it's more of like in terms of that and of, but they you cannot say they are not brilliant scholars. Like you read the stuff from the Puritans who were Calvinists. You read the stuff from the Presbyterians who were Calvinists. You read stuff from all these different Calvinist churches, and their scholarship and understanding of theology is impeccable. Like if you're going to challenge them to an argument, you need to know your stuff. They are, and that's part of the um, what was what was kind of special about them is because these were people that were self-taught or created their own schools and everything, and they passed down these traditions, and these were traditions that they were very well, strongly argued. I've, I said this in a piece once, but you know, you're you're made to read uh, "Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God" sometimes in school, and you pretend to read it because you don't want to actually want to read it. But I actually do encourage people to read "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God" by Jonathan Edwards. It's not. It's not a fire and brimstone speech. It's not long. It's not like a fire and brimstone Baptist speech. He methodically, through citing scripture and calmly explaining this to you, explains why you're going to hell. And it's it is it is true scholarship. And it's it's that level of of value and education of these of these Protestant churches is what built small town America. Small town America was built around these local churches that did emphasize study and and teaching, and I'll let you guys take it from here because I believe somebody needs me right now. Well, and not only did they they found their own universities and found their own, um, uh, you know, Hillsdale College started this way. Uh, all throughout the South, there were all these colleges. Uh, um, uh, I think that you know to the extent that America is something worth saving, uh, it, it's because of things like this. I mean, you know, I'm a, uh, I, I tend to agree with Mulbug and a lot of the, the, the problems with Calvinism as in, in a polity, but, uh, you, you can't look at what, you know, the United States now and, and, not appreciate what these people did. They managed to build a nation across an entire continent, and uh, they're they're impressive. And you know, think that you know you you underestimate them uh, at your own peril. I think that they're still some you know the, the uh, Anglo's from well I don't know seventeen fifty to. 1950 were the most impressive group of people to ever exist, I think. And I say this as someone who's not a particular fan of a lot of Anglo nonsense. But uh, particularly the, the ones that came to the United States. Anyway, you're, you're the big brain guy, DK. What do you have to say? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think um, I think it's noteworthy that his son initially um, 
was talking about maybe being a minister. Norm was talking about the, the main character was talking about being a minister. As sort of like well, there, there was a, there was a weird uh, I, again I have to assume it was actually in the um, in the novella. But uh, I, I, one of my notes is there's strong exer vibes. Actually, I put about like exer a bunch of exer type projection, um, which may well be the case. Uh, but uh, just in the idea of like th- there was a moment in the film where it seemed again like it was going to turn into this. Which in some ways it was a kind of like a drama of, you know, small town kid goes to the big college, sees, you know, what life is like in, you know, elite or even just, you know, those in, in, like on the, on the, in the like, whatever. And, uh, and then comes back home and doesn't know what to do with himself. I mean, there's a million fucking extra movies about that, right? <laughs> and, uh, and I think it's a very common experience. Um, it, or it's, it's a common experience after the GI bill and everybody starts going to college, it is not a common experience. I don't think in, in 1920s Montana, which is one of the reasons why I, I before I learned that it was autobiographical, I'm like, this seems like, which I, I think ultimately it is, uh, what it, it's not that it's not, um, true to the time and place overall. Uh, I mean, obviously it, you know, it happened, but, um, it, it, it's also very rare, right? It, it's not representative necessarily. Um, Anyway, I think the part that is representative or like tells the kind of um, broader story that I'm interested in is um, as, as part of this kind of pro- – like I think he mentions when his dad – he comes home from school and his dad's like, what are you going to do? And he says, oh, I'm going to be I'm going to be with the Bureau of Land Management I'm gonna do, or whatever it was called then and do forestry stuff. His dad is like, as a career? <laughs> and he's like, no, just for the summer. So I get myself sorted out. He's like, well, you know, what are you interested in doing? He's like, well, there's a couple of things. I applied from some teaching positions, but also, you know, for the ministry. And I forget what he said in response. But um, obviously he doesn't go down that path. He, he, he um, there, there's nothing really, um, I would say, anti-Christian about the the story or uh, in the way that a lot of other stuff is these days especially and um i don't know about norm mclean his uh like personal beliefs or whatever i just have no idea clearly at the kind of seems like he's just a product of this mainline american christian protestant type um right well and in fact culture professoriate yes drew heavily from that as well yes well not only drew but almost in a in a uh, after the GI Bill, right? It replaced yes, the, the yes. clergy. In, yes, at, yes, a hundred times. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, yeah, um, and there's definitely that. Con- that in that sense, there's a continuity, but right. it's not a continuity of faith, right? It's not. It's right. not a. Yeah. Right. Um. So th- that's the part of that 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 I think um, that really stuck out to me. Uh, was, right. Because so, yeah. In. Uh, Norman McLean died in 1990. Uh, he, he wrote A River Runs Through It in 1976. His wife of over 30 years, he married Jesse Byrne. She died in 1968. So by by the time... Oh. Uh, uh, by the time, you know, he was born in a Christian country, and by the time he died, it was not. And it was because... It was almost because of the the great love for learning that those. It was that, but it was also because he tolerated his brother being with the with an Indian chick. You know what I mean? Like, like he's well, he, he yeah, was, and also a willing I mean, participant in the destruction, right? And, well, or, or just that the, the the refusal. I mean, the the Anglo 
ruling class was the most tolerant uh, towards the Jews of anybody, and which is why they got their hooks in so deep here and in England, right? Like like the, the two places that they have controlled the most of all white countries uh, were were you know England and the United States, and uh, I don't you know uh, I don't think that there anybody was. Uh, you know, as far as I know, there's no Jews in this film at all, and certainly there weren't many Jews until relatively recently. But they certainly weren't hostile to Jews. Let's not forget that Missoula, Montana, is where the whole kerfuffle with uh, Richard Spencer and uh, the you know the the troll Daily Stormer march was supposed to happen. That it it is that part of Montana in uh, Flathead Lake area where um, so uh, and there are certainly Jews there now but there weren't Jews there a hundred years ago in any meaningful way right well I yeah yeah no um, anyway um, was there any other uh, major themes or things you wanted to talk about in relation to the film um, I think they did a great job with the fishing a really, really great job with the with fishing. what? Sorry, with the fishing, with the fishing side of it. Oh, the fishing. Uh, I, I'm not a I'm not a particularly good fisherman, but uh, there is something beautiful about fly fishing that they captured nicely. I bet. I bet. I mean, I, I, can, I mean, you could see why a bunch of people in 1992 would see this film and be like, "Shit, I'm going to go fly fishing in Montana." That looks really nice. It is really nice. There's something about it. <laughs> yeah. Something about it. And uh, Well, unfortunately, it looks like um, Borzoi is still out. Um, I mean, I, I, we could go on, but I don't know. I don't have, like, I, we, we hit everything on my notes. Um, yeah. I don't know. Uh, I, I, I thought that Craig Schaefer's performance wasn't that good. Or it wasn't bad, but it wasn't outstanding. It didn't really stand out to me. I thought yeah. that Brad Pitt did a really good job. I thought Tom Brad Skerritt Pitt was great. Yeah, I thought Who? I thought Tom Skerritt was that the the father, the father. Okay, yeah, he he was also uh, was also in things like Top Gun and a few other things. Uh, Who was he in Top Gun? He was the uh, uh, the senior instructor that tells Maverick about his dad. Oh shit! <laughs> yeah, right. Oh man. Oh, uh, I think he was also in Steel Magnolias, a few other things. But Tom Skerritt yeah, is yeah, a good yeah, actor, yeah. and I thought yeah, he, he was great. Really... He was good too. It was like a, it was you know, a supporting role, but but quite good. Um, uh, yeah, I, they really whiffed on the acting skills of of Pretty Boy. Um, oh well, <laughs> many such um, cases. <laughs> yeah, many such cases. Um, no, I thought I thought overall really good. Um, uh, a, a striking thing that I just thought of is is how male centered it is. Like how yes, women are like, that, women, yes, that start, yes, I didn't make a note, but yes, it's a very ma- actually no, yes, I did make a note. Sorry, I had two two note files because I watched it in two sittings. So, uh, uh, sound of music for country boys was like my first note. Yeah, I I, I think that uh, like like the mother's there. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, 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 like, in terms of like mattering in the story at all, no, 
Not at not, all. Not, not really. I mean, like, like the the worst part is like you know when the boys are fighting and then they knock their mother over and she's just like, I just slipped. Yeah. Uh, uh, and of course, you know, he's courting the the uh, his eventual wife and and like so women exist, but they're not. Uh, in the story as like pivotal characters. Uh, oh, and one last thing I had uh, saw my notes here. Uh, the Anaconda Mine Company. Um, what? Sorry, the Anaconda Mine Mining yes. Company. Yes, Anaconda Mining okay. Company. So when Paul is talking about the story that gets spiked. Um. Oh right, yeah. Oh yeah, we didn't mention the. There's also like gangsters and shit. It's kind of. A, I mean, there's like a funny. It's funny how I guess equivocal the the narrative in the novella slash movie is compared to real. Like that's the, the, the his dealings in Chicago. The fact that he's in Chicago at all is like completely elided from the version that that uh, that he writes down. I find that funny. Anyway, sorry. Go on. Well, no, I mean, the in the in the book, it's very clear that like he goes to Chicago and Paul goes with him, and, and okay. Paul is killed by in on the south side of Chicago in 1938. Ah, uh, okay. So that's in, that is in the book. So, so the movie is what changes it. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. But, um, uh, but yeah. The so they don't. There's, I didn't the quite get it. But basically, mind, there was something where like they wanted him to. Yeah, they, they we were threatening him with like killing him if he ran some story that made there was like something something gangsters. I didn't quite catch, but whatever. Well, well, no, what it was is that the Anaconda Copper Mine, which is outside of Butte, Montana, uh, was es- essentially treated all of Montana like a like a fief. It was it was uh, sure. incredibly corrupt, and even still to this day, there's a massive pollution problem from all the mine runoff. They have to. Um, so it, it, it's just one of those little, uh, like this is where the progressive kind of impulse came from. Jeanette Rankin was the first woman to be elected to the house of representatives. And she was from Montana and it was against fighting things like, like the big mines. And she's the only person to have voted against world war two. And she was one of 20 oh, or so people to Je- have Jeanette raised. <laughs> yes. Uh, she was, she voted also against world war one. Yep. Uh, um, extremely but, based. <laughs> Holy shit! Well, no, I mean, she was. She was. You know, I mean, she was a, a Anglo shit lib, right? Sure. Like, but uh-huh. the progressive, like, oh well, you know. Uh, and 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 in fact, like in her logic, there's almost a like, well, then you shouldn't be here. Like, well, since I can't go to war, I shouldn't vote to send anyone to war. Like, oh, actually, yeah, you're right. But also that means, ar- oh, wow, that's a good argument. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but also that means you shouldn't be here because you're not actually. Right, yes. Yeah. Well, that, that was my next question. Was like, well, did she vote against the 19th Amendment or whatever? Like, I mean, how did that work? No, she was not. Anyway, uh, uh, yeah, of her, course, her, that's, her, that's, her, her sister you know, was an advocate for birth control as well. Yes, sure. Uh, that was so, like, a, yeah, progressivism is, it would be. We should do a, a cult. I think that would be fun to have you on for a culture. Maybe both of you guys for a culture tear if you wanted on like late, uh, like the American progressive movement because I know it's come up on like fascination and stuff, but we haven't. And it's, uh, well, it's obviously a backdrop for this is movie as well, right? Like the yeah, flapper is uh, like they made a comment about Jesse Burns getting a major in flapperism, right? Right, uh, and uh, I think I think the Myth Boys did did an episode on on progressivism a while back, but anyway. Um, I'd have to double check. Uh, so the Anaconda Copper Mine basically ran Montana as a as a 
a Fife. And then even by 1938, um, you know, the Great Migration had commenced. And uh, between 1914 and 1970, six million blacks moved from the rural south to the industrial north. So, um, in, in predominantly in Chicago, it was on the south side. So, probably Paul uh, was probably killed by blacks. Oh, wow. To, to whom to whom's she owed money. She was also, because like she had lived that long. She, she had lived from 1880 to 1973. She was also opposed to the Vietnam War. No, she was just a peacenik. Yep. Uh, Jeanette Rankin. Yeah, so. yeah, just you know, take her for what she is. Like, uh, obviously, like <laughs> eschew the based cringe dichotomy. Yeah. What? No, things are either based or they're cringe. What are you talking about, Borzoi? <laughs> they can't. They can't. They can't be nuanced. We can't do nuance. Uh, so where are you guys? What are you guys? I was just saying. I, I'm. I am. For, well, I have one last note uh, on my end, and and that I uh, was. Um, it was actually so. I was, I was always like going through toward the start of the movie. I was like creeping, feeling of ominous dread, um, and like in relation to the brother. That was that scene with the boat where the you know the first time that the brother's life is in danger, and then that made me think about because um, there was also like shots of timber and talk of lumberjacks and stuff, and um, it made me think about the recent myth of the 20th century episode on uh, lumberjacks, and and uh, and they had that beautiful lumberjacking song at the end of it. So then <clears throat> as I was um, looking into it, I found a, like a master's thesis in musicology about lumberjack songs. The first words of which was were the white man's yell timber. And I'm like, fucking is this is the nothing. So it's like white, you know, white men aren't even allowed to like lumberjack the Pacific Northwest or whatever anymore. Like, give me a break. I don't know, it was just it's just kind of a little funny thing. I don't know. I had some stuff in here about so I, I I basically have two topics left. Um, I was gonna I was gonna touch on fishing and Christianity, but I feel like we talked a lot about Christianity. I don't know if there's like we need to get and we talked a little bit about fishing. I think the you know we don't need to go too deeply into that. Obviously, like, the fishing is a is a is a recurring theme within within the Bible, especially in the context of the New Testament. But um, I had some quotes from the both the movie and also the the book. I don't even remember why I wrote these down, but I think I'll put them in. I'll, I'll do it. And then I want to talk about wilderness a little bit, but, uh, so, but it was a tough, it was a tough world too. Even as children, we understood it and admired it. And of course we had to test it. That's right. There was like, there was a lot of stuff. This is a very masculine movie as well, which kind of goes without saying because of the, you know, this relationship with the two brothers and the like, and it, it's almost kind of silly that we even have to like talk about this. Because, but I guess that just shows the degradation of culture in terms like this is how men were. I mean, we you for men today like you're given all these different suits, costumes, affectations that it, you have to sub- subscribe to one or the other, and there's no there's no longer any sense of the of the holistic of like the whole like the essentialness of of being a man. And part of the and with the rise of of this transgender culture, it reduces more and more of sex to these affectations and and roles and costumes. When no, there is an essential nature to this, and it's not something you can just replicate. the The, the idea of especially being a European man is like that's the Faustian aspect to test the boundaries and to go beyond them 
to find what the what the limits of the world are and test those for better or for worse. And in this movie, you have Paul testing that. He he tested it on the on the more un, you know the seedier side of it, and he pays for it. But there's no again kind of going to that whole aspect of grace. There's no judgment to that it's it's a it's a kind of acceptance because when the movie ends he, he has this this moment with the fish then he dies then a couple of years later and they're talking about the fallout of it um their father dies after giving a sermon and it's kind of left at that where you're not supposed to take one one thing or the other from that that this is just this is the essence of it I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. Did I cut out? No, no. no I, 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 think that's, I think that's a valuable insight. And to your to your point about um, logging and all that sort of stuff, Whitefish, Montana, used to be known as Stumptown. So that whole area, uh, to the extent that the Little Blackfoot was polluted, it was because of runoff from logging. Um, and there was just this, this masculinity that uh, in older people I knew at the time in the 90s, you know. Well, of course, you know, I boxed and I, and I commercial fished for a little while and spent a little bit of time here and you know, or did logging or whatever, you know, like just, just like, oh, and of course everyone spent, you know, their time in the war and, uh, or something. And, um, I think that it's a, a valuable, or maybe not valuable, but, but it's certainly interesting that there's just this assumption of masculinity that, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't be in evidence today. Uh, and actually, you guys maybe. were talking about the logging industry here as well. I I pulled this quote from the novella as well. It's a, lo- a longer passage, but it's worth reading. We also held in common the knowledge that we were tough. This knowledge increased with age, at least until we were well into our 20s and probably longer, possibly much longer. But our differences showed even in our toughness. I was tough by being the product of tough establishments, the United States Forest Service and logging camps. Paul was tough by thinking he was tougher than any establishment. My mother and I watched horrified morning after morning while the Scottish minister tried to make his small child eat oatmeal. My father was also horrified, at first because a child of his own bowels would not eat God's oats, and as the days went by because his wee child proved tougher than than he was. As the minister raged, the child bowed his head over the food and folded his hands as if his father were saying grace. The child gave only one sign of his great anger. His lips became swollen. The hotter my father got, the colder the porridge, until finally my father burned out. Each of us then not only thought he was tough, he knew the other one had the same opinion of himself. Paul knew that I had already been foreman of forest fire crews, and that if he worked for me and drank on the job as he did when he was reporting, I would tell him to go to camp, get his time slip, and keep on down the trail. I knew that there was about as much chance of his fighting fire as of his eating oatmeal. We held in common one major theory about street fighting. If it looks like a fight is coming, get in the first punch. We both thought that most bastards aren't so tough as they talk, even bastards who look as well as as talk tough. If suddenly they feel a few teeth loose, they will rub their mouths, look at the blood on their hands, and offer to buy a drink for the house. But even if they still feel like fighting, as my brother said, you are one big punch ahead when the fight starts. And it might be like 
I guess it would might be no. cliche, cliche to say this, but like that's an attitude that's no longer present within this country, especially among its men. No, not in the slightest. It's uh, yeah, I think um, I know DE had had, had a lot of uh, experience with the manosphere type stuff. Um, that's all. That was one of the main vectors for my um, entry into this thing as well, and uh, it, it's it's something that I. Um, I, it, it, it's you have to be so deliberate about it. There was a um, a buddy of mine who was texting me the other day about you know like his wife just went and spent a bunch of money or committed to spend a bunch of money without asking him first. And it's it was a kind of funny thing of like you know being a moment of self reflection of like uh like because he, he he was thinking like I need to get my woman in line. I'm thinking how can I help my buddy get his woman in line. Um, Everybody kind of understanding implicitly uh, many, you know, husbands need to get their wives in line. And for me, at least, it was like a, um, uh, how to say, I, I, I did not arrive naturally at that conclusion left to the, you know, TV and university system. Um like that was a conclusion I had to sort of reach and very deliberately, but that's just the world that these people inhabit to the extent that, as we sort of noted earlier, the, 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 the mother is just like barely even a character. Right. Right. Which is fine. I mean, that's, you know, kind of how things should be unless there's some very good reason for them not to be in their case. There wasn't, she's very happy. She's a very good mother and a very good wife. You know, he's very happy. He's a very good father and a very good husband, but you know, the woman's agency and well, she just doesn't have the kind of agency that would contribute meaningfully to the narrative. So it just doesn't even come up. Right. And, and actually, and then the one time a woman, sorry. And just to finish. And the one time a woman does have agency, it's the floozy with the tattoo of love on her ass. Uh, and she doesn't even know the guy. She, she's so drunk. She can't even tell the guy she's with from the guy from one of the, from the brothers. She like refers to the brothers by the guy's name. You're like, that's the guy that that's the other guy you're asking for, but but she can't tell. Um, right. Jesse doesn't even really have. She has like some amount of agency as like you know courtship is a two way process. That's basically it. And those are the two female characters. Right. Yeah. Or the the Indian woman. The, the Indian woman is not a have a. She's a prop. She's not a character. Right. And I think that actually. One of the things that, uh, you know, that is actually a, a real source of annoyance for people who are from these sorts of places is that, you know, someone from California comes there and you're like, well, what do you mean? Like, like cattle ranching is gross. Logging is gross. Fist fights are gross. And it's like, yeah. well, what are you doing here then? Like, why would you come here if you don't like that sort of thing? Right. And uh, uh, it's it certainly was resented as late as the early two thousands of of you know like foreign interlopers coming to Montana telling people to you know not get in fist fights <laughs> like what do you mean <laughs> yeah, like, right. like like this is what we Montana. do here yeah <laughs> right. we fly fish and we fist fight like you know, <laughs> right yeah, these or, are the four F's of Montana <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, you know or, or uh, um. Something is, is uh, you know, like how how um, 
central fires are. Uh, Norman McLean's other major book was a, a published posthumously in 1982 uh, about, uh, I think it was called Young Men in Fire, about his experiences as a forest service firefighter. Uh, and j- just how... I'm trying to just have a hard time describing what it's like when like the entire horizon is on fire. Yeah, it must be uh, other. I mean, I've seen pictures, of course, and it it looks otherworldly, but I I don't have any. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it it, it does look like that. And it's strange and it's hellish and it's weird and it's magnificent all at once. And I think that, uh, you know, the landscape is more of a character than the women in the movie. Yes, very much so. Yes. Right. As a class, it's like men, landscape, women. Is like the order, <laughs> the order, <laughs> right? And uh, so I, I think that uh, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, kind of portrait uh, of this place, and uh, I, I don't know. It was. It I, was I, I would thing, recommend it. The, these days, it. I've been getting really my. I don't know why, but my Jimmy's get rustled at at this is what they took from us type vibes like when i see nice things from you know like mid 20th century media for all its problems you know can be can be quite nice and you know this would definitely be an example of that the thing that struck me i don't know if it's me or if it was something just this film was very cozy i think we were agreeing on that in the chat um it did i didn't i didn't get my jimmy's rustled really I, it was like more of a mournful you know bittersweet like yes but we can have nice stuff you know some later time um as opposed to getting mad about it. It was, it was just very, uh, it was, it was very gentle. It was very, um, it was nice. As I said, like the, yes. Okay. Sometimes the shots linger a little too long or whatever, but for the most part you won't mind. And, um, uh, it, it's just, a, it's, it's just very comfy and, and yeah, definitely, definitely recommended overall. I just, I don't know. I, um, whatever, it doesn't matter. My, my artistic critiques are kind of quibbly at the end of the day. All right, uh, I had one more passage, and I just wanted to briefly talk about wilderness stuff, and then we're, we'll get out of here. So I don't even remember why I had this here. I just thought that maybe it was just a passage I liked. Help, he said, is giving part of yourself to somebody who comes to, to accept it willingly and needs it badly. So it is, he said, using an old homiletic tr- transition that we can seldom help anybody. Either we don't know what part to give, or maybe we don't like to give any part of ourselves. Then, more often than not, the part that is needed is not wanted. And even more often, we do not have the part that is needed. And I guess, like, I guess, to me, it kind of sums up the kind of like the, I guess, the tra- like the, the tragic aspect of the United States, because you don't often, when, especially when you when people talk about uh, American exceptionalism, manifest destiny, and all that, that that aspect is certainly there. That's not that is not an uh, an invalid, you know, aspect of a, of the United States. But there is this tragicness this tragedy i find to the united states especially when you're able to step out and look at its history and i understand the people that want to find something in its past that maybe if we go back to this point we can figure out what went wrong and right go in the yeah. right direction well like um there's a little bit of protestant interreligious advance you know he says uh Oh, and Jesse's family were Methodists, you know, which you know he thought of as Baptists that could read. <laughs> um, which kind of 
kind of touches your point a little bit. And here's how I mean it. Like, um, you know, her brother, uh, that goes to California to basically be a sexual degenerate. Right. And, and surf. Um, and his brother who, you know, is a gambling addict and an alcoholic and, you know, couldn't do things like fight fires cause you just needed to be dependable. Uh, you know, fighting fires is super dangerous. Now it was even more dangerous back then with the, the equipment and tools that they had available. Uh, so, ridiculous fighting wildland fires. Um, but, uh, the, the things that could have righted the ship, if it was at all possible to do, to write the ship, to, to make something stable of America, right. Just weren't there. You know, you were going to need to steal a little bit of Lys Magis from the Catholics and, a little bit of, you know, uh, you know, a little bit of grug brain take of like, just don't like them, don't care from the Baptists. You're going to have to do all of this stuff to meld this continent-wide empire into something that could that could kind of hold together uh, to help, and and it was impossible because the things that we uh, need from each other are, you know, often things that we, that we don't like, you know, Paul did not like being told you drink too much. Right. You know, the couple times it gets brought up in the film, he very visibly is not happy with, with like, you know, so I think that there's that. That, that is worth talking about or maybe worth thinking about perhaps. I don't know if it's worth a whole dissertation. I wrote here in my notes and all I wrote was Edward Abbey. <laughs> uh, I, I yeah. assume you've read him DE uh, DK. Have you ever read any Edward Abbey? No, I oh, highly oh, yeah. recommend it. He's kind of, he's the, he literally was the last, I mean, in a, in a writer way, he was the last American uh, man of the wilderness. I'll check him out yeah. for sure. Yeah, Monkey Ranch Gang. Uh, he was an influence on Kaczynski, good. if that tells you anything. Kaczynski, Kaczynski. I've heard of the Monkey Ranch Gang. Yeah. I didn't know that they were... Yeah, I've heard of that. Um, and, so I'll, uh, I'll one, check it out. One, one Life at a Time, please, is his collection of essays that I find very good. He was an anti-immigration uh, anarchist. And yes, he was, and he was. he wasn't sure. an an, he was an anarchist in the same way that Kaczynski was an anarchist. Like they didn't understand like the implications of calling yourself an anarchist. It's like, well, I'm just against. No, that, that's these basically me as a teenager. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I sort of like I wouldn't. I mean, I wasn't like strongly political, really. But to yeah. the extent I had, um, it would have been along those lines. So I get it. Yeah. So he got anyway. a lot of trouble with his liberal friends because he he was against immigration. Oh boy, did I. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> but he got he, Edward Abbey got into a lot of trouble with his friends, his liberal friends, because he was anti-immigration because for the for the conservation reasons. Right now, his his oh wow, policy interesting. Okay, was uh, the, okay, interesting. What, what was what? I'm I'm struggling to remember the quote here. It's it's from memory, so forgive me. But it was, uh, and, and Abbey particularly loved. Is it is it, the, is, it the, is it is it is it the cancer cell one? No, no, no. 
Okay. It was uh, so he, he particularly loved the deserts of the Southwest. So illegal immigration into the Southwest really, really bothered him. And he he said, uh, "Those poor campesinos know who oppressed them. Uh, send them back home with a rifle and ten rounds, and they'll solve the problem." <laughs> uh, is is something like uh, again? I'm, it's been years since I read it, but it was you know that 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 struck with me. Uh, and uh, I think you know, his, which the his best pithy quote is uh, endless, uh, endless growth is the ideology of the cancer cell." That's true. Yes, too. that of course I've heard a million times. I just didn't yeah. know where it came from. Yeah, right. And, and then you just look at Los Angeles and you want to weep or Vegas. Good lord. Um. Anyway. No, uh, you were saying about wilderness, Borzoi. Yeah, we'll just kind of close out on there, and just I guess personal re- reflections on that. I've been, I've been, I've been getting out into the wilderness more and more, and reading a lot more Edward Abbey. It's, I, I think, I would argue it's been good for for my mental health in terms of like realizing just how dumb a lot of this internet stuff is. Like, it, it, you need it there. You need it's it's communication, but man, when you're when you're out there, it's there's there's no there's no substitute for it, and you know you you let these people have their way, they're going to just stack ten billions of people in this country in places they don't belong. No, no, there's, um, how would I describe this? So there's something about getting up in a small plane in the Mountain West where you see just how much nothing there is. And I'll try and relate this as best I can. But in outside of, say, Missoula, right, you get up in a plane, not a jet, but like a, a smaller plane. And there might be little cabins dotting here and there, and up a river there might be something. But if you're 500 yards off the road, you might as well be five miles, because there's nothing. There's just nothing. And the idea that you were going to just stack people in this place that's far away from everything, and a steep hillside in uh, you know full of trees, that, 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 you, that A, you're going to destroy this beautiful wilderness, and B that uh, it's like this fungible thing that you can just swap for like flat land in the middle of the Midwest or something. Uh, and, and people can just live here. Like, nope, nope, no, they can't. And, uh, uh, and I, I think that it, uh, to a certain extent, we need to be, you know, conservationists, uh, you know, like Teddy Roosevelt type conservationists, uh, because if if uh, if we don't love it, uh, certainly certainly no Pajit will. You know, uh, it's just they don't. You know, they get here and they they want their Buffalo Wild Wings and their PlayStation and their uh, uh, and they they don't take care of it. And so, if it's if it's to exist in the future, if you know they're going to be someone casting flies in the sunrise on, in the year twenty one hundred, it's going to have to be a, a nationalist project that that makes it so that those rivers exist uh, and those fish still exist. 
pretend that there's not some sort of horrible, you know, four on top condominium, you know, stuck in the foreground like a eyesore. All right, I'm back. You guys uh, don't have your wilderness recollections. Yes. Okay. Uh, so, do you guys have any final thoughts before I uh, close this out? Nope. Strong recommend the movie. Okay. Yeah, I feel like it's very solid there. So, I'm gonna re- I'm gonna close this out for- with a quote from Edward Abbey, actually, and this is the from because he was involved in environmental stuff as well. But this uh, actually, real quick, Borja, would yeah. you recommend the book being worth reading as well? If no. you like literature, yeah. Um, I didn't. I try. It's a. It's a novella. So if you get it, it's going to come with a collection of other short stories. I couldn't finish those. Like I didn't really have. Um, it's not my type of fiction, but the novella is is beautifully written. That's why I read some of the passages from it. So I. But I only recommend it if you're just uh, a fan of fiction. As I as I've discovered in this thing of ours, a lot of our guys seem to be dismissive of fiction for some reason. I don't never really understood that, but. Now, I just remember there was a point I was going to make earlier in reference to something that the guys on Tedious had, had brought up, and I can't remember what it was now. Ugh. What an episode this has been. All right, but this is a famous quote from Edward Abbey at the 1987 Earth First conference. Earth First. Uh, and I think it's a good sentiment to have, at least on some level. We also, uh, I'm looking at the wrong one. Here we go. <clears throat> one final paragraph of advice. Do not burn yourselves out. Be as I am, a reluctant enthusiast, a part-time crusader, a half-hearted fanatic. Save the other half of yourselves and your lives for pleasure and adventure. It is not enough to fight for the land. It is even more important to enjoy it while you can, while it's still here. So get out there and hunt and fish and mess around with your friends. Ramble out yonder and explore the forest. Climb the mountains. Bag the peaks. Run the rivers, breathe deep of that yet sweet and lucid air. Sit quietly for a while and contemplate the precious stillness, the lovely, mysterious, and awesome space. Enjoy yourselves. Keep your brain, your head, and your head firmly attached to the body, the body active and alive. And I promise you this much. I promise you this one sweet victory over our enemies, over those desk-bound men and women with their hearts in a safe deposit box and their eyes hypnotized by desk calculators. I promise you this. You will outlive the bastards. And with that, I'm going to push the pause button on this.
What a beautiful world it was once, at least a river of it was, and was almost mine and my family's and just a few others who wouldn't steal beer. You could leave beer to cool in the river, and it would be so cold when you got back, it wouldn't foam much. Wizzo, we can't hear you. What the fuck?